your Bibles this morning, if you would open them up to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. While you're turning there, our children, they are dismissed to kids' church today. Kindergarten through sixth grade. As they make their way to kids' church Give the Lord our heart, our mind, our attention on this Palm Sunday. What a privilege and an honor it is to see Miss Sarah back from Clarksville with us. Great to have her. I think I see George back over there. I see George. He's back there. He's banged up. And so it is good to have not just her back home today, but all of our those that are with us, those that were with us yesterday and loved us so much, they came back today. Hallelujah. Amen. In Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and at the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples, they went and they did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you and I praise you for your word, for your declaration that we can come. Oh, in 2021, God, all of these centuries later that God that we get to come and we also can declare Hosanna Hosanna to the son of David Hosanna in, in the highest God we come this morning and we declare God your presence your authority your leading right now in these next few moments as you touch us through the power of your word in Jesus name we pray and everyone said amen you may be seated this morning When we talk about royal entrances, triumph, I don't think that there is any greater example of splendor than what we find in some Renaissance paintings. You see, back in the 1400s, there was a Renaissance painter who did a series of nine paintings called The Triumphs of Caesar. Well, before Julius Caesar was Caesar, he was a general. 
and as a general, he commanded uh, a mighty army, and he was victorious. And on one particular uh, return to Rome, he was victorious over the area that we would now call France and, and Belgium. And, uh, and, and so he returned to, uh, to Rome with this great celebration. And what the paintings depict is uh, these series of paintings of all the different scenes. And first, there were trumpeters who led the parade of Julius Caesar with wagons that were laden with uh, all the spoils of their victory. And next, there was gold and silver coins that they had plundered out of the land that they had captured. And then next, there would have been uh, all the crowns that had been given to Caesar as a reward uh, for Caesar from all of the cities as he would have gone city to city, they would have uh, just lavished him with all these crowns. And so those were on display next as part of the parade. And then there would have been white oxen. And then uh, what's portrayed is these elephants that are a part of the procedure. And then came Julius Caesar himself with a chariot that is embellished with all of these ornate designs. And he would be wearing, uh, he's wearing in this in his painting a a, a crown of many of gold and precious jewels, and he's dressed in a purple toga, and and just declaring this royalty. And these gold stars are embroidered upon what he's wearing, and he holds in his hand this scepter of ivory and laurel branch, which was always a symbol of victory. And riding in the same chariot with him, where are pictured our boys and girls on either side of him, and. Uh, outside the chariot, other horses and relatives who are riding along and entry to him. It is quite the scene. It is quite the procession. And then after that becomes uh, those that had served him in the war as armor bearers and those that had been his assistants. And then after that come the lines and lines of soldiers. And when we imagine this and we picture this scene of a Roman emperor, Roman Julius Caesar, or soon to be emperor, I guess, but rolling back into, into Rome, and he has this incredible fanfare, quite a contrast to what we see on Palm Sunday, quite a contrast to what we see in the entry of Christ. Because as Caesar was rolling in, it is, and, and this victory parade is marching down the center of Rome for all the people to cheer and all the people to declare, he was following the example of all the great leaders of the world. All the great leaders of the world like to display their, uh, their glory, like to display oh, their grandeur by showing people how powerful they were. It was a day for Rome in that painting a celebration. But when we look at Jesus, we see quite the contrary picture. We see him riding in, and there is certainly lots of fanfare, but we don't see any white oxen. We don't see any elephants. We don't see any gold chariots. We, we don't see uh, any crowns. We don't see any of those kinds of things. And we have to understand that you see Caesar and Jesus obviously have two very different purposes. Caesar is trying to exert his earthly power and his earthly dominance or domination. But Jesus came to do the will of God. He came to not bring glory to himself, but to ultimately to die for the sins of the world. This becomes one very rare exception to his uh, keeping everything subdued 
this one time during this public ministry, Jesus allows the people to praise him and allows them to have a little bit of fanfare. And this becomes a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 and the prophecy that ultimately is being fulfilled through Christ. You see the background and where our story begins in, this, in our text is it says that, uh, that they, were, they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Bethphage was about two miles from Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And, and so from this point, he sends two of his disciples to go and find uh, uh, the donkey and the cult for him to ride on. And this becomes a prophecy that is retold in verse 5 of our text. He was entering Jerusalem in a way that showed the people that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of everything that they have been looking forward to, everything that they have been declaring that they are wanting and waiting for for so long. And so on this day, he enters. And as he enters, what we see is this incredible display of praise, a praise of majesty. We see something that is very different than Caesar's example. And what we see is the people declaring a praise of his majesty. And here in this praise of his majesty, we see honor happening, honor taking place. The people recognize the significance that Jesus was presenting himself as their king. And they took time to honor him by spreading their cloaks upon the road. This was a common practice in, in the sense that it was an easy way because every one of them would have had an outer cloak. And they may not have had money to give. They may not have had coins to throw. They may not have had anything like that. But all of them had this outer cloak that they could easily remove. And they could lay down upon the, ro on the road as a sign of honor, as a sign of surrender. And in fact, we see in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13, this Old Testament practice that uh, here it is that each, uh, each one, each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on top of the steps. And they blew the trumpets declaring that Jehu is king. And so they were honoring Jehu and by laying down their cloaks and blowing uh, the trumpets. And not only did they honor Jesus by laying down their cloaks, but they cut the palm branches from the trees. See, these palm branches are a symbol of celebration as a result of a military victory. And all of a sudden, we begin to understand maybe more fully what the people are expecting, what the people are looking to, what the people are thinking. You see, they have come and they are declaring a victory. In fact, if you read some of the Jewish history in the Maccabean period when, uh, when the Syrians were drove out of Jerusalem. It was there that they waved uh, palm branches for Simon, the, the leader of the army, who as he came back into Jerusalem. And so this is something that is familiar to them, but it is connected to a military victory. So they honor him, but they also praise him. The excitement around the crowd and the excitement around this event, we see this declaration of Hosanna. Hosanna. This Hosanna is a compound Hebrew word. The two words that it is formant mean save and now. And so literally, Hosanna is a save us now. This is a directly taken out of the Old Testament. In fact, in Psalm 118 and verse 25, it says, Save us now, or save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now. 
prosperity. This psalm was a psalm that was, would be sung during the Passover festival. And it was something that marked this, uh, this looking and this longing uh, for there to be a salvation from the world around us. We look in this song, in this psalm specifically, in this declaration of Hosanna is a, a reminder that what God is, or what the people were looking for is a redemption. It was this, this, this presenting that we need to be redeemed. We need to be saved. They recognized that, but in a very different way than what God recognized that. You see, they were looking for military victory. They were looking for uh, redemption. They were looking for uh, they were looking for being delivered out of the hands of the Roman Empire. But the word Hosanna ultimately expresses this desire that God understood that they needed not just redemption from the world, but they needed redemption oh, from sin. They needed salvation. They needed uh, this idea. And so we come now and we say, we hear this call of saving us. Save us now. A question for us today is what do we need saving from? What do we need deliverance out of? Oh, do we need to declare, save me now from sin, from circumstances, from Satan himself, who is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You see, we come and we recognize that all of these things are true. You see, we are reminded this morning that the word of God declares that every single one of us need saving, that all of us have sinned. And we all fall short of the glory of God. And that sin in our lives, the word of God declares to us that that sin, the wages or the payment or the, uh, the consequence of that sin is death. But I'm so thankful that Romans, that Romans continues that. And he tells us that for the wages of sin is death, but what? The gift of God. See, and so every single one of us, we have this, this understanding that we each need salvation, that we each need the saving out of the circumstances because we have all been born into sin. We have all been guilty of committing sin and that that sin that we are guilty of will eternally separate us from God if we do not call on the name of Jesus. If we do not have a Hosanna moment, we need to be able to say Hosanna this morning, save us now, redeem us, cleanse us, set us free, that we need to be able to enter into his sanctuary this morning and have a moment of honor, that we need to, spiritually speaking, to lay everything before him, to lay down before him and say, God, I'm giving it to you as a sign of honor, that we need to declare Hosanna and praise to him as we surrender and say, God, I cannot do it myself, but I need you. I need your hand. I want to challenge us this morning that we don't just need saving from sin, from Satan, from the world around us. You see, because what the people had come that day looking for was a saving out of circumstances. <laughs> they were oppressed sure that they were depressed. They did not like the Romans. And they were looking for 
redemption and salvation from them. With no concept in their mind and heart at this time that they needed saving from themselves. Their own choices. Their own mindset. At the end of the day, when we begin to realize that uh, the Israelites that are gliding the streets on that Palm Sunday and they're declaring Hosanna and save us and what's in their mind is military victory, deliverance I imagine that may, there may have even been conversations that day in the street, here he comes here is the king, he's going to ride in he's, where's his army? wait a second, where's the chariot? where's the, where's the weapons? Maybe, maybe you've got a stockpile somewhere here in the city. Oh, I can imagine the conspiracy theories right then. Where's the stockpiles in the city of Jerusalem? All, all of Jesus' army and his weapons. That's what they were looking for. And in that moment, their motivation for those things was the mindset of how difficult life and how difficult the circumstances were in that moment of their life. They wanted to be set free. And they were so consumed by the despair and by the circumstances of everything else around them that they had a failure to see the true condition of their own mind and heart. And all of a sudden, we begin to realize and have to ask ourselves, how similar do we find ourselves today? We look around and we look at our world and we recognize its shortcomings. We recognize the difficulties of life and circumstances. We recognize the things around us that we wish were very different. But if we're not careful, we get so focused on all of that on the outside that we lose sight of what God desires to do on us on the inside. And here it is that we need to be able to say, God, we need saving from ourselves. You see, a selfish or self-centered focus and perspective is a very unhealthy perspective. When we look at Caesar and we look at his grand entrance, I think that part of that is not just about the people, but it's about Julius Caesar liking to be the center of attention and glorified and magnified and it's very self-focused on him. But how does Jesus enter into Jerusalem? He comes and he does not come with the fanfare and the focus on him. But he comes trying to reflect a humble heart. You see... When we begin to think about this, in fact, in the, in the, in the prophecy, in the fulfillment of this, did you notice what the, uh, what the declaration is here? The, the daughter of Zion. Zion is uh, this citadel, fortress is what it means. And it referred to the fortress that sat on the hill of Jerusalem. And, and so hence, today, we will use Zion and Jerusalem kind of interchangeably. because, But Zion specifically is referencing that fortress, that uh, that. That place on the hill of Jerusalem where Jerusalem was initially founded and began. It is there that we say the daughter of Zion. 
this prophecy that was being given. Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and riding upon a donkey. You see here, this prophecy, do you know the context of this prophecy being given? It was given in the context of the exile out of Babylon. It was part of the prophecy and the promise that not only was there going to be Messiah that was going to be down the road, but it was in the context uh, after their captivity of Babylon. And the hope would be that just as God had set them free and returned them back home after the captivity in Babylon, that they would be able to be set free here on earth. And so this created this self-focus of waiting to be victorious militarily and set free. But Jesus comes in very different, very humble. This humility that Jesus enters Jerusalem defines really who he is. I mean, think about the word humble. Actually, uh, the Greek word for humble comes from the word easy, meaning that, uh, and the word would be used like a gentle breeze that would blow or a gentle voice that you can hear. Humility becomes the opposite of pride and instead of showing others how great that you are or how grand you can be, humility becomes a reflection and the opposite of self-interest and selfishness and, and self-assertiveness and, and, and Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Humility is how Jesus carried himself. But here you and I are so many times in our humanity. Our humanity cries out what? Self-preservation. Self-satisfaction. That is where our flesh finds itself so many times. But God calls us back to humility. Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself so that he could fulfill the plan of God. Too many times, I think, where do we find ourselves? Transparency is your pastor. So many times when things are going on, as an individual, I say, what am I going to do to fix this? What am I going to do to change the circumstance? And I continually have to be coming back to these kinds of moments where I'm reminded the declaration of Hosanna is not about what God intended. is not for it to be about the Romans. Not for it to be about circumstances or the oppression but God you have to be the one that does it you have to be God the one that moves upon my heart you have to be the one and we have to get beyond our own pride our own selfishness our own self-focus and how many times do we try to make circumstances about ourselves the reality is that's not about you it's not about me. It's not about us. You ever had a conversation with someone and just shared your heart before your soul? And rather than responding with compassion or with prayer, they immediately began to unload about 
and making it all about them. Don't point any fingers. There is that human nature, that struggle that is within us, that struggle that we've got to be able to come to this point of saying, God, if you presented yourself as a humble king, then how do I need to present myself? Because herein lies the difficulty. Just like those that lined the streets of Jerusalem on that day, We will go through life and we will proclaim praise. We will proclaim honor. We will have these moments of personal honor. We will have these moments of public praise. We will have those kinds of moments. But then we fall into the mistake of trying to proclaim him as king on Sunday, but live our lives the way that we want to Monday through Saturday. find ourselves in that situation in order to keep us from falling into that situation we need to be able to have a Palm Sunday Hosanna kind of moment Hosanna save us Hosanna save me redeem me from my own ways redeem me from my own pride Redeem me out of my own faulty thinking. Redeem me. Save me oh, from me trying to be independent and do it all by myself. Save me oh, from my own wickedness or fleshly temptations. Save me from my own pride or arrogance or self-centeredness. Save me so that I can not just praise you in my song or on a Sunday or waving my palm branch before you spiritually speaking. Oh, but I can praise the Lord in every single day, every single thing that I say, every single thing that I do. That I'm not just praising him in what I say on Sunday, but I am declaring that he is king in every area of my life. I'm declaring him king in my mind. I'm declaring him king in my values. I'm declaring him king of my finances. I'm declaring him king in my choices and in my priorities. I'm declaring him king over my family. I'm declaring him king over my home. I'm declaring him king over my children, over my grandchildren. I'm declaring him king over my community, over my church, over my nation, over this world. If we are going to say Hosanna, then we've got to be able to mean it more than just on Palm Sunday. We've got to be able to say God, save us. Save us. Save us from our own ways. Save us from our own wickedness. Save us from those temptations. Because what do we always end up doing? We trip over ourselves and we get in the way. And rather than we've got to be able to say, God, I surrender everything to you. Jesus declared, seek me first. And then what? All these other things will then begin to be added. And too many times we get it backwards. We're seeking God for the things that we want done or delivered from. And therein lies the heartbeat of what we 
Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And I, I can't help but wonder. As Jesus was beginning this Holy Week, he was beginning the process of an incredible amount of suffering, shame, and pain. This day marked the beginning of that. I cannot imagine the weight that rested upon his, his body. And as he's riding in, I just wonder. When Jesus was looking out, so many times you've seen the, y'all remember the old Sunday school flannel graph? boards. I remember, I have this picture in my head, and I remember the flannel graph picture of Jesus riding on that donkey, riding on that colt on Palm Sunday. And how does Jesus look? He's got a big smile on his face. I imagine that he smiled at Jesus. But I wonder, in that crowd was he really smiling or what instead as he looked at them was he seeing what they were going through what they were dealing with and the betrayal or the ultimate betrayal that was about to take place from the same crowd and it says that as he's walking in or riding in rather I'm sorry that he's looking at the people and he's having compassion but he's also hurting. Because he recognizes that the same individuals who are shouting Hosanna on Sunday is part of the same crowd that says crucify him later in the week. And unfortunately, I don't know that we are a whole lot better time we choose sin or selfishness and we don't allow Jesus to be king over every area of our life it's as if we are crying out crucify him in our spirits and that's the choice that we are making see when we come to this place How do we respond? When we have these realizations, how do we respond? Do we do the good man thing and we sweep it under the rug or ignore it, pretend it's not there? Any other guys like that? We, we pretend things aren't there. <laughs> the honey-do list, it's being ignored, I promise. It's not there. It's a figment of the imagination. <laughs> I'm getting preached it from the guys in here. But seriously, how do we respond? How do we come back from this realization that maybe there are some areas in our lives that Jesus really isn't king? I think that the answer still, in, still lies within Palm Sunday. 
It still lies within the understanding that we are going to be like Jesus and we are going to humble ourselves, that we are going to even, maybe even embarrass ourselves before God by removing the outer shell of what we have put around ourselves, the exterior, the face, the facade of what is around us, and we lay it before Christ and we say, God, I don't want to have this anymore. We begin by removing the facade and laying it on the road and say, Jesus, I'm honoring you. We also must be able to say, I am going to have give personal honor to him. Personal personal honor. Nobody else, your spouse, your mama, your daddy, your brother, nobody else can give honor on your behalf. Nobody else can do that. And it is here that we begin to understand uh, that it is in this context that we realize that Jesus made the declaration if these people do not cry out, then who's going to cry? What's going to cry out? The rocks. I don't want the rocks to cry out in my place. Last week, we looked at not being silent, and we cannot be silent. We have to be personal in giving our honor and giving our uh, being able to come and say, God, I'm going to honor you in my own way. And for, because it's personal, it's going to be different from one person to another. There are sacrifices or things that we give to God personally that will be different from one to the next. But not only will we give personal honor, oh, but we need to be able to be a part of public because that's what we see here. Public praise is given. Personal honor is given. But public praise is given as they come together and they are to, all together being able to celebrate Jesus Christ. They praised him with their heart. They praised him with their voices. And they, be able, they were able to come to this place. Do you know what the English word worship means? It means worthy of honor. Worship, both private and public, personal and public. It means that we're coming to the place of yielding and surrendering and submitting to him. I have shared, as musicians come this morning, I have shared two different, we can't go anywhere anymore. Two different coronations. Julius Caesar, full of fanfare, regalia, grandeur. Jesus enters into Jerusalem with a completely different mindset. Humble, lowly. I want to share a third one with you. June 2nd, 1953, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary was crowned Queen Elizabeth II at Westminster Abbey. 
coronation ceremony followed all the tradition, all the pageantry. And just before the crown was placed upon her head, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he cried out, he faced north, and he cried out and he said, I present to you the undoubted queen of the realm. Are you willing to give her homage? And there was a resounding response. We give her homage. Give her honor. The archbishop then turned to the south. And he repeated the process, and, and he said, I present to you the undoubted queen of the realm. Are you willing to give her homage? And they responded with yes. And he did the same to the east. He faced east, and he faced west, and he, he followed the same pattern. And, and not until north, south, east, and west, all had responded in the affirmative. Would the nation accept her as queen? And it was then, only then, that the crown would be placed upon Queen Elizabeth's head. And it is here that we realize that as impressive as the pomp and the pageantry of the ceremony was, number one, there had to be this resounding collective of declaration of this is who we are. This is who we're honoring together. And it was that collective agreement that brought them together as a nation and that declared her as queen. This morning, we as Livonia Church of God, we as believers, we have had the opportunity and we do have the opportunity to do publicly in declaring Jesus as king. Someone who is worthy of far greater honor than the British Queen. But as impressive as all of that pomp and pageantry and the coronation service and how impressive it was, she is only a constitutional monarch. And what it means is that she really does not have any authority to control the kingdom of England. Parliament can pass a bill and they send it to her and she has the opportunity to sign it. But do you know that whether or not she chooses to sign it, if she disapproves and does not sign it, guess what? It doesn't change. It's still law. Even though she is the undoubted queen of the realm that was declared on her coronation day. She is simply a figurehead in name only. With no real power. And it breaks my heart to know that for so many of us, we treat Jesus more like Queen Elizabeth than we do King of Kings and Lord of that on coronation day we'll say Hosanna 
save us. But we're in the, when we are in the throes of everyday life, and we're in the struggles of ups and downs and at work or with our family or living life, that we find ourselves not treating him as the true king of all kings, but instead we revert back to the British monarchy example, and we are like, well, this is the way we're doing it, whether you like it or not, Jesus. Therein lies that we can proclaim him as king of, in our worship, but if we live our lives as we choose, then is he really king? The answer is no, not in our life. Jesus didn't come just to go through the motions of the fanfare of Jerusalem and Passion Week and just because he wanted to, he came, oh, because he is king and he wants to be king, not just of the universe and the world, but he wants to be king of each and every one of us. Amen. He wants to be personal. What's so incredible is that while it may be impossible for anyone in this room to get an audience with the Queen of England, oh, every single one of us get an audience with the King of all kings. We all are able to come before him and declare, Hosanna, save us, save us. If you would stand with me this morning.
We get to declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We get to declare, Hosanna, save us. Save us now. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sin. Save us from our circumstances. We get to come and yield and surrender. And we can have our own home Sunday moment. Oh, in 2021, when we say, God, I don't want you just to be king in my worship or my praise. But God, I want you to be king over every area of my life with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, if you recognize that you need God to save you in an area of your life, you need Him to save you from sin, from temptation, from a circumstance, from a circumstance, or even from yourself. Oh, then I want you to step out from where you are and I want you to come and make an altar. You need God to hold, help you in the middle of a situation and come and find him this morning. Secondly, oh, would you oh, have to have a conversation with God and say, Lord, you're king, but there's these areas of my life that I recognize today that I have not given you authority over in my life. That's you. Would you just raise your hand? Slip up your hand. Thank you. Thank you. This morning, if you need prayer for any of these things, or anything additional. Let him be healer. Let him be redeemer. Let him be deliverer. As I pray this morning, these altars are open. There's enough room for you to come and find your own space, your own place to encounter him and to declare Hosanna. Hosanna.